We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. And away we go, episode 117 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, August 6th, 2021, the day after a classic day regarding three former Washington quarterbacks. What happened on Thursday was someone's idea of a joke, right? A, RG3 officially became a college football and NFL analyst. ESPN. His playing career is essentially over. Oh, I suppose an NFL team desperate for a quarterback could sign him at some point, but him signing with ESPN tells you everything you need to know about the demand for his quarterback services. B, Kirk Cousins, who is still playing in the NFL, but doesn't want to get vaccinated for COVID-19 and just missed a bunch of practices due to COVID-19 protocols, he is actually talking about working (laughs) in a plexiglass hut at the Minnesota Vikings facility so that he can't be deemed a close contact of a COVID-19 positive person. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, Kirky, we know. Hello. And C, Dwayne Haskins was on display on national television on Thursday night as the NFL preseason began 
We, on Thursday night, had the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. Pittsburgh Steelers 16, Dallas Cowboys 3. Dwayne, who in January signed a reserve future contract with the Steelers, went 8-13 for 54 yards, no touchdowns, no picks, no sacks taken. Now, did he brag about his stat line after the game like he did after Washington's loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field in week four of last season? I'm not sure. Uh, But what a confluence of events on Thursday. A confluence of former Washington quarterbacks making national headlines. Hello and welcome to a Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Hey, Dan Snyder has won again. Has that for a statement on a Friday. Full explanation coming up next segment. In-depth Washington football team conversation is coming up as well as we'll unpack every relevant thing that Ron Rivera said on Thursday at his post-training camp practice press conference, including Ron on Washington's improved COVID-19 player vaccination situation, Ron on Cole Holcomb, and Ron on Cam Sims, and Ron on Cam Sims is going to lead us into a discussion about something important regarding offensive football. Special guest on the show, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC. He'll tell us what he has been seeing at Washington football team training camp, the quarterback situation, the starting right tackle competition, the safety competition. I'm also going to talk Wizards with Ben. He knows the Wiz well. So much to digest with the Wiz over the last week with Russell Westbrook being traded and Spencer Dinwiddie being acquired. All of that should become official soon. Bottom line, Are the Wizards better off than they were at the end of last season? I'll talk Nationals late in the show. Uh, They blew it on Thursday. They blew a 5-3 ninth inning lead, 7-6 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park to complete a four-game sweep. That was a wild game. A lot to get into with that game. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. A thank you to all of you who continue to subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate that so much. Also, a thank you to all of you who continue to give the podcast a five-star rating and write uh, one-sentence reviews or longer, if you prefer, uh, saying how much you like the podcast. Those things help out the movement quite a bit. So thank you. And if you haven't done those things already, please consider doing them. They don't cost you anything. And like I said, they do help out a lot. Tweet from Brett Williams regarding our discussion on Thursday's show, episode 116, about would the Washington football team ever try to ban the wearing of Redskins gear at FedEx Field off the Washington football team banning Native American-inspired ceremonial headdresses and face paint at FedEx Field. And keep in mind the phrasing of the announcement. Read the announcement, quote, we are excited to welcome everyone back wearing their burgundy and gold. However, Native American-inspired ceremonial headdresses or face paint may no longer be worn into the stadium, end quote. Writes Brett, I agree that there are very few headdress or war paint wearers at games, maybe four to five total. I think the welcoming burgundy and gold is code for wear your skins gear if you like. We'll see. Uh, interesting point, Brett. I had not considered that. Maybe that line of, we are excited to welcome everyone back wearing their burgundy and gold, is code for, shh, you can still wear your Redskins gear. Who knows? Uh, we do know that the burgundy and gold colors are staying for the team's permanent name and logo. That's good. Uh, that truthfully was a layup. Those colors should never change. Unless, of course, we transition to Jim Zorn's color scheme of maroon and black and yellow. You know, they all get involved, and they all got their gear already, and so they're going to be all colored up in, uh, in the maroon and black and yellow. Yes, thank you, Coach Zorn. Uh, email from Kristen Carrera. He writes, 
could we still be Redskins if a few years back, <laughs> Dan the Dragon had made the decision to offer 1% to 2% ownership to Native Americans? Uh, that's an interesting question. I'd say probably not. Although that would have made for an intriguing dynamic. If Washington had had within its ownership a Native American strongly in favor of the name who could have powerfully articulated the argument for keeping the name. See, that was always a part of the problem for Washington throughout trying to keep the name Redskins. The team never had someone within it who could artfully explain the argument for the name. The people who best stated the argument for the name, honestly, were some of us in the media and fans. I took a million phone calls on the name issue over the years. Plenty of Washington fans did a much better job than the team ever did of explaining why the name should stick. The team never did a good enough job of getting its side of the story out there, of putting its spin on the issue. Too many others put their anti-name spin out there. The team did not do a good enough job of putting its story out there. And I don't know if that would have made a difference, but it couldn't have hurt. Well, a big fan of the Washington football team and a big supporter of this podcast is Dr. George Verghese. He actually sent me a picture not long ago of a good-looking Washington football-themed chair that a patient made for him in 2012. The chair is painted burgundy and gold, not maroon and black and yellow, although there is some black on the chair. Hey, maybe Jim Zorn sent Dr. Verghese that chair. Anyway, Dr. Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and a downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, before we get to our Washington football team training camp discussion off what Ron Rivera had to say at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, before we get to our special guest, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC, I have to spend a few minutes on something that came out on Thursday. So Forbes.com on Thursday came out with the site's annual list of the NFL's most valuable teams. And the most valuable NFL franchise per Forbes for a 15th consecutive year was the Dallas Cowboys. It really is amazing the extent to which the Cowboys dominate this list. And not that the Forbes list of NFL team valuations is gospel, but Forbes is considered highly credible when it comes to stuff like this. How valuable 
is an NFL team. You know, and these are estimations, right? I mean, it's not like Forbes is saying, okay, this is uh, to be carved into stone what this team is worth. It's an estimation from Forbes on what each NFL team is worth. The Dallas Cowboys have been the most valuable NFL franchise per Forbes each of the last 15 years now. The Cowboys were valued by Forbes at an NFL high $6.5 billion, up 14% from 2020. Say what you want about Jerry Jones. Say what you want about Jera. But he knows how to make money. The Cowboys per Forbes are worth $6.5 billion. How about them Cowboys? Yeah. Yeah. How about them Cowboys? Now, every NFL team's valuation went up a bunch this year per Forbes. In no small part, due to the new media rights deals. You can't overstate the significance of the new media rights deals, aka the new television deals. So the NFL this past March 18th announced the signing of new long-term television contracts with media partners Amazon, CBS, ESPN slash ABC, Fox, and NBC. The agreements per Forbes come out to a total of $111.8 billion. The Amazon deal is set to begin in the 2022 season. The other deals are set to begin in the 2023 season. Each deal ranges between 10 to 11 years. The total package essentially doubles what the NFL is making under its current national television deals, about $5 billion per year. So yeah, in this cord-cutting environment, the NFL doubled its national television money. That is incredible when you think about that. So yeah, every NFL franchise is seeing its valuation fly to the moon. Uh, The rest of the top five in terms of Forbes' most valuable NFL franchises per this list that came out on Thursday. Number two, the New England Patriots, estimated value of $5 billion. And that again does put into perspective the Cowboys. Cowboys again, number one at $6.5 billion. Patriots number two at $5 billion. Number three, The New York Giants, estimated value of $4.85 billion. Number four, the Los Angeles Rams, estimated value of $4.8 billion. And number five, the Washington football team, estimated value of $4.2 billion. The Washington football team, per Forbes, is the fifth most valuable franchise in the NFL. Despite all of the struggles over the last quarter century, despite all of the -the off-the-field controversy, despite the team not even having a name, the Washington football team is the fifth most valuable franchise in the NFL. $4.2 billion. That is a 20% increase from last year. 20%. Two things I want to hit on off that. So consider when Dan Snyder bought the team, what he paid. May 25th, 1999, a day that will forever live in Washington, D.C. sports infamy. NFL owners voted unanimously to approve the sale of the then Washington Redskins to a group led by a 34-year-old man named Daniel M. Snyder. Yes, he was 34 when he bought the team. The approval came more than two months after longtime team owner Jack Ken Cook died at the age of 84. 
The approval ended a nine-month sale process that began with a blind auction. That was some process, the process by which the Danny became Washington team owner. Dan paid $800 million for the team and for what was then known as Jack Kent Cook Stadium, now is FedEx Field. So Dan paid $800 million. The team, as we speak, is now worth, per Forbes, $4.2 billion. Second thing to consider. So when Dan Snyder ultimately bought out his disgruntled minority partners earlier this year, right? Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, Fred Smith, that was a transaction that was completed this past April 2nd. Dan paid a reported $875 million, okay? So he bought out Shaw, Rothman, and Smith at a reported price of $875 million. So let's do the math on this. Shaw's, Rothman's, and Smith's minority shares added up to a 40.5% stake in the Washington football team. $875 million for a 40.5% stake in the Washington football team worked out to the franchise being worth just $2.16 billion. Now, there is a discount that comes when you buy minority shares because the minority shares offered no clear path to majority ownership. So it was always believed that those minority shares would be sold at a discounted price. But keep in mind what the discount was for an overall franchise valuation of just $2.16 billion. Here we are now, and Forbes on Thursday says that the Washington football team is worth $4.2 billion. 40.5% of $4.2 billion is $1.7 billion. Again, Vadani paid $875 million for the 40.5% stake in the team, not $1.7 billion. Dan, if you go off Forbes valuation of the team, ended up getting a near 50% discount on those shares. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, happy Thanksgiving, Danny boy. And even if you say, again, yeah, but the minority shares were always going to be sold at a discounted price because the minority shares offer no clear path to majority ownership. Nobody ever said a near 50% discount, okay? Maybe you said 20% discount. Maybe you said 30% discount. Okay, but near 50% discount? I mean, come on. Did you really think that those shares would go at that kind of a discounted rate? And yet, it seems that's precisely what ended up happening when Vadani bought out Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. And so take a step back now and consider the calendar year of 2021 for our guy, Dan Snyder. January 2021, his Washington football team wins the NFC East. March 2021, the NFL announces the signing of new long-term television contracts that will essentially double what the NFL is making right now on an annual basis from national television deals. April 2021, Dan officially buys out his disgruntled minority partners, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith at the reported discounted price of $875 million with a reported $450 million debt waiver for which, remember, the NFL's finance committee made a special exemption. 
June 2021, Dan named his wife, Tanya Snyder, as co-CEO. July 2021, Dan emerged from the Beth Wilkinson investigation, having to pay a token $10 million fine and with no official suspension. And now in August 2021, the Washington football team is valued per Forbes at $4.2 billion, a 20% increase from Washington's valuation for 2020. Danny keeps winning. Danny keeps getting over. Danny is laughing at all of us right now. The scene in the movie The Hangover involving one of our favorites, Leslie Chow, Mr. Chow, as he gets over on Phil and Stu once again, as Leslie Chow is powering up his window and saying, in fact, singing, Toodaloo, Mother Bleepers. Yeah, Leslie Chow, Mr. Chow, winning again and letting you know it. And that's exactly what Dan Snyder is doing right now. Toodaloo, Mother Yeah, toodaloo, mother bleepers. That is Dan Snyder this summer. And I'm not saying you got to be happy about it, okay? But this is what's happening. This is the reality here. Danny Boy is Mr. Chow in The Hangover. Dan keeps winning. Toodaloo, mother Yes, exactly, Mr. Chow. By the way, does Mr. Chow prefer to be called Mr. Chow like Dan Snyder prefers to be called Mr. Snyder? Somebody check on that. Anyway, it's incredible. Remember the talk of Dan Snyder potentially being ousted as Washington football team owner? How ridiculous does that now look? How foolish and naive does that now look? Dan Snyder, a.k.a. Danny Boy, a.k.a. The Danny, keeps winning. Yes, exactly. Well, another man who keeps winning is one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. If you need to sell your home and are unsure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. And understand, Ron Rivera knows position flex. John Grandland knows commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's quite simple. Flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. Don't just accept that. Let John Granlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including, by the way, selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free. Zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin to sell your home guaranteed. Yeah, that's right. Guaranteed. John Granlin guarantees the sale of your home. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. Call John G now. 703 703- 
537-6747. John Granlin's a great guy, easy to talk to, good sense of humor, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan, but most importantly, he will do an excellent job selling your home. He will maximize your home's value. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. When you call, make sure you say, hey, I want to learn more about what I keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. You can also check out John Grandlin online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, so let's get to talking about the Washington football team from a football perspective. Washington football team training camp continuing, moving, of course, to the team facility in Ashburn this week. Big night on Friday night. More on that in just a bit. But big news for the Washington football team on Thursday morning. Washington on Thursday morning activated both Deron Payne and Brandon Sheriff off the reserve COVID-19 list. Both guys were back practicing on Thursday. Washington had placed Payne on the reserve COVID-19 list this past Sunday. Washington had placed Sheriff on the reserve COVID-19 list this past Saturday. So Washington has gone from having seven guys on the reserve COVID-19 list to now just two, Curtis Samuel and offensive tackle David Sharp. Washington on Tuesday morning activated Cornelius Lucas off the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Tuesday afternoon activated Matt Ioannidis and corner Chris Miller off the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Thursday morning activated Payne and Sheriff off the reserve COVID-19 list. So this week, which started off rather poorly for Washington in terms of its COVID-19 situation, is ending well, at least going into Friday. Five of the seven guys who had been on the reserve COVID-19 list now are off it, and Washington's COVID-19 player vaccination rate has soared. ESPN Washington football team insider John Keim on Wednesday evening reported that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players was beyond 85% as two players had each received a first shot of a vaccine. It was just three weeks ago, Friday, July 16th, that we had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 player vaccination rate of less than 50%. Rod Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday on Washington crossing the 85% threshold for players getting vaccinated for COVID-19. Well, it's good. I mean, you know, the, the, the kudos to the players for, you know, for, for, for trying to get as, as informed and educated on, the, on, on it as much as possible. And, you know, that's a good thing. That's a plus. We're heading in the right direction. You know, we, we still have several guys that aren't, um, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But, you know, hopefully we can continue as these guys get more and more comfortable with it. Um, you know, we can get it done. Now, the 85% COVID-19 vaccination threshold for players on a team is significant because the crossing of the threshold allows for a relaxing of some of the COVID-19 protocols put in place by the NFL. Ron, on Thursday, on that relaxation. Well, as, as, as we cross the threshold, you know, the, the, the protocols do lighten up. They do ease up. You know, it means we can do a lot more things in person uh, and, and as groups as long as, you know, we, uh, as long as the unvaccinated do, do pay attention and, and stay separated. But for the core guys that are, are vaccinated, they can get a little bit tighter and, and, and be around each other a little bit more. So that's a huge plus. So why the change? Why did this situation for the Washington football team turn around? Again, it was just three weeks ago, Friday, July 16th, 
that we had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 player vaccination rate of less than 50%. And then on Wednesday evening, August 4th, we got the news that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players was beyond 85%. Ron Rivera had not been shy, right, about expressing his frustration about more of his players not getting vaccinated for COVID-19. Does he now believe that his players took his frustration to heart? Um, maybe. I mean, and again, it, it's a personal decision. I mean, a lot of guys got to think through this and try and understand it, you know, and, and, and I hope that there's enough good examples out there to, to, to get guys to think and sway them to, to do what, what they believe is right. Some other Washington football team notes in terms of player availability. Cam Curl uh, did not practice on Thursday due to illness. Kyle Allen remained out of having tweaked his surgically repaired left ankle on Saturday. Charles Leno did not practice on Thursday due to a personal matter. Samis Reyes still dealing with his tweaked knee. There is no official injury report during training camp, so you just go off of what Ron says at his press conferences and what the team perhaps puts out there. We've also had something like Matt Ioannidis not practicing fully as he works himself back off having been on the reserve COVID-19 list. So no Washington position group got called out more by Ron Rivera last season than the linebacking core, which to its credit did get better as the season went on. Washington's best linebacker last season was Cole Holcomb, although he in the 2020 regular season did only play in 11 games. He missed four consecutive games, weeks two through five, due to a knee injury, then missed the loss to the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field in week 15 due to a concussion. Washington took Holcomb in the fifth round of the 2019 NFL Draft out of North Carolina. He's entering his third NFL season, and he was a popular topic during Ron Rivera's post-practice press conference on Thursday. A lot of questions regarding Cole Holcomb. Ron, on Thursday, on Holcomb. You know, he he's, he's, has made some really big strides. It's hard to say, but you see a little bit more discipline in his play. Um, you know, you don't see him biting on things initially as hard as he did. Uh, the nice thing is, if he does, he's got enough uh, ability to react quickly and get himself back to where he needs to go. But you do see him practicing better, practicing faster, having a, a better knowledge of, of the defense. And, um, and, and, and the little things, little details in his game have really stepped up in terms of taking the proper step, taking better angles, um, you know, using and understanding what his leverages and coverages. Those are the things that you really appreciate with Cole because he's so athletic that any, any quick step or good first step gets him into the play faster. How and why is Holcomb playing in a more disciplined way? Well, I think the thing about Cole more so than anything else is I think because he understands and he's got a better feel for what we're doing and how we do it, I think that's helped him as far as development in terms of his, his discipline. Um, part of the discipline is realizing and recognizing that I don't have to make every play. Okay, I have to make the plays that are presented to me as, as I do my job, as I read my keys. Um, Every now and then, yeah, I'll get out of my, my, my gap or my responsibility and go make a play, but that's because I've seen it. I'm not trying to force it. Uh, that's a big part of it. Young guys want to make every play, and, and the truth is you can't. You know, got a little saying we tell the guys, you know, I, I want 11 guys doing one thing at a time, not one guy trying to do 11. And Cole understands that now. You know, he, he gets it. If I do my job, I'll make the plays that I should, and every now and then I'll make a play that I shouldn't. Yeah, Holcomb is fast. He at the 2019 North Carolina Pro Day ran a 4-5-1-40. Also fast is Washington's 2021 first-round pick, who just happens to also be a linebacker, Jamin Davis. He at the Kentucky Pro Day this year ran a 4-3-7-40. Washington now has a speed at linebacker that the team hasn't had in a long time. How are things going between Holcomb and Davis? They're great. Okay. I, I like the synergy that's in that linebacker room. I think Coach Russ has really fostered a positive uh, atmosphere for our young guys. 
Um, and, and, I, and I can't help, you know, I know I've praised him before, but John Bostic and his work with all those young guys, and, 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 and not just Jamin and Cole, but, you know, with Kalik and, and some of those other guys, that, that's what you, you want from a guy that's a veteran player, and, and, and he's been terrific. He really has. Yeah, interesting to hear Ron talk up John Bostic there, unsolicited. We've wondered whether Bostic might be a surprise cut, but, you know, cutting him lessens Washington's depth at linebacker, and it's not like Washington is super deep at linebacker, to begin with, Bostic's going into his age 30 season. He, in the 2020 regular season, played in all 16 games for Washington, finished number two on the team in defensive snaps at 92.44%. Ronald Darby was number one. Now, even if Bostic does make Washington's season opening roster, his playing time this coming season figures to be diminished. I mean, he's not finishing number two on Washington in defensive snaps if both Jamin Davis and Cole Holcomb stay healthy. Right on Thursday on how Bostic is handling Washington, having spent its 2021 first-round pick on a linebacker. I mean, he's handled like a pro. I mean, he's taken it in stride because, you know, he knows it's a challenge. And, you know, and we've always said we're going to play the guys we believe that help us the, the most, that give us the best opportunity. You know, we have a whole different combination of, 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 of defenses, different sub-packages that everybody's going to fit in. We're going to give everybody an opportunity to own something. Uh, John's done a great job with it, though. I mean, he's, he's what you want in a, in a professional football player. You want a guy that understands, gets it, and it's not going to deter him from out there competing and trying to get better every day. And that's what he's done, and he deserves the praise. Sticking with Washington's defense, something that I got into on Tuesday's show, episode 114, was William Jackson III on Monday having potentially let the cat out of the bag regarding Washington's secondary playing more man or zone this coming season. So Washington as a team last regular season, number two in the NFL in pass defense per football outsider's DVOA metric. Washington last regular season was number six in the NFL in third down defense. And Washington did all of this playing a lot of zone coverage. Washington's secondary last regular season per football outsiders played man coverage just 24% of the time that ranked 25th in the NFL in terms of highest usage of man coverage. There has been an expectation that Washington will be playing more man coverage this coming season, especially off signing Jackson in March, as he is known for being very good in man coverage. Jackson, at his post-practice press conference on Monday, on what has been the biggest adjustment for him with Jack Del Rio's defense. Uh, uh, it's more a zone. You know, I, I came from a, a kind of man system. So with the zone, I'm just getting comfortable on where guys need to be, like linebackers, safeties, and knowing where they need to be and what I need to do to make plays in the defense. Yeah, so Jackson flat out says it's more zone. Ron Rivera on Thursday was asked about a corner like William Jackson the third having to adjust to playing more zone off having played a good bit of man. I think part of it is just understanding, you know, when can I play with my eyes? When, when, when can I, you know, when can I look through the receiver to the quarterback, you know, which you'll get through zone. Um, in man coverage, you know, the idea is, is, is to get at the line of scrimmage, be physical with the guy, jam him, try to route him to your leverage. Um, and part of it is just understanding that I don't have to do that as much as I've got to get used to looking through to the quarterback. And you don't want that to carry over when you now go to your man technique. So it's just kind of understanding, getting used to. And the really only thing that really helps with that is just reps. And uh, But with his skill set, with his ability, you know, being able to, to master that and understanding as I look through the guy to the quarterback gives me an opportunity to make more plays, you know. Um, there was a guy here that, uh, that, that came from Carolina that came to Washington 
that was his strength with us in, in, in Carolina, you know, and, and you guys know I'm talking about Josh Norman. Josh was a guy that, that had that ability to, to look through a rece- uh, receiver to the quarterback and anticipate and understand and expect. You know, that's what we're hoping that, you know, that, that he can learn and develop that feel because, again, like I said, with his skill set, he can make a lot of plays on the ball. Yeah, funny hearing Ron reference Josh Norman. At first, Ron wouldn't say Norman's name, just like Ron wouldn't say Ryan Kerrigan's name the other day. And then uh, Ron decided to say Norman's name. That was the thing with Josh Norman. Very good as a zone corner with the Carolina Panthers during Ron Rivera's tenure as Panthers head coach. Not nearly as good with Washington, which had Norman playing a good bit of man coverage. Norman got scorched in man coverage in 2019. He got filleted in man coverage in 2019 at what was his final season uh, with Washington. Look, there is no right answer. Zone can work. Man coverage can work. All that matters is that you're good against the pass. And going back to William Jackson III, so he missed his entire 2016 rookie season with the Cincinnati Bengals due to a torn pec that was suffered early in Bengals training camp. But Jackson, over his four regular seasons of actually playing for the Bengals, 2017 through 2020, for Pro Football Focus had a man coverage grade of 78.8 and a zone coverage grade of 74.1. So better in man coverage, yes, but really not by that much. We'll do a lot on the Washington football team offense coming up after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. 
And we get back to talking Washington football team right now off Ron Rivera's post-training camp practice press conference on Thursday. So with Washington's offense, how is Cam Sims doing? We have not engaged in a lot of Cam Sims talk during training camp. Washington in March re-signed Cam as a restricted free agent, only gave him a low-round tender. He got a one-year $2.133 million contract. Restricted free agents to be can be tendered at one of multiple levels. The higher the level, the more the money for the player in the tender uh, and the more compensation for the team should it not match an offer sheet for the player. Cam ended up signing his tender, but again, it was a low-level tender, one-year $2.133 million. Washington, rather tellingly, did not tender Cam at a high level. But there is a lot to like about Cam Sims. He's going into his age 25 season. He is Washington's tallest receiver. The team lists him as being 6'5", and he's coming off a 2020 season in which he had some big games as the season went on. 23-20 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9. Cam had three receptions for 110 yards on four targets, three catches that totaled a buck 10. 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers on uh, Monday evening football, if you remember that, in Week 13. Cam Sims had five receptions for 92 yards on nine targets, including a spectacular catch on a fourth-quarter third-down play. Alex Smith had a fourth-quarter third-and-four 29-yard shotgun completion to Cam, who made a tremendous one-arm catch with his right arm. You go to the postseason, 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild-card round. Cam in that game, seven receptions for 104 yards on 13 targets. Now, he did have a bad drop early in the game. Washington's first offensive drive, Cam had a drop while wide open on a Taylor Heineke second and 14 deep shotgunning completion. Cam did have an issue with drops last season, but he emerged as a playmaker as the season went on. Right on Thursday on how Cam has been doing in training camp. I think he's been great. I really do. You know, when he's gotten opportunities, the ball's been thrown to him. For the most part, he's made plays, and he's come up with plays. You know, that's one of the things that everybody's got to understand, um, and, and I hope the players understand this, because there's only one football. And when you got five skilled players out on the field and you distribute the ball, and, and I've told you guys this last year, one of the things that I always look at is I always look at ball distribution. You know, who's the ball being thrown to? Who's catching the ball? Who's running the ball? Who's getting what touches? And if you can keep that diverse, if you can have where you have eight different guys touching the ball, not one guy cut, touching it 10 or 12 times, you know, unless he's killing it, you know, but, but you know, five here, six here, four here, three here, five here, then you know. Now, you can't focus in. You, you can't, hey, we're going to roll up and take this guy out of the game and make these guys beat us. That can't be the attitude. They, 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 they have to keep everything spread out as far as the defense is concerned. That helps us. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for one individual to, to you know, have 10, 12, and everybody else to have one or two. I, I, I hope we can keep it diverse and we can have five, six, five, four, three, five, that type across the board. So what Ron was just talking about right there is, to me, true offensive balance. Offensive balance isn't running the ball as much as you pass the ball. I hate when people talk about you need to be balanced and say that as meaning as you need to run as often as you pass. No, you don't. (laughs) You need to do whatever must be done to win. If that means throwing 50 passes and totaling just 10 rushes, you do that. If winning means running the football 40 times and only throwing the ball 20 times, you do that. Uh, Offensive balance to me is more about getting all of your primary playmakers adequate touches. 
And assuming that Washington has multiple quality playmakers, and I believe that Washington does, then offensive balance should be a goal for this coming season. Washington's offensive playmakers to me are Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Cam Sims, maybe slash hopefully Deami Brown, Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Logan Thomas. They're not all on the same level, but those seven guys right there are capable of making big plays. There are others as well, but that's a nice list of guys with whom you can do things offensively. Offensive balance for Washington is getting all of those guys adequate numbers of touches game in and game out. Not easy, I understand, but that's the offensive balance that Washington should strive for. That's the offensive balance that I believe Ron Rivera was referring to in that cut that I just played for you. In fact, I want to play something else for you. So this is the best thing that I've ever heard regarding true offensive balance. Comes to us from one of the smartest offensive minds in all of football, Mike Leach, currently Mississippi State's head coach. This is from October 2018 when he was Washington State's head coach. Mike Leach on true offensive balance. I want all the positions to touch it. Nothing balanced. There's nothing balanced about 50% run, 50% pass, because that's 50% stupid. Now, uh, what what uh, what is balanced is when you have five skill positions. If all five of them are contributing to the offensive effort in a somewhat equal fashion, then that's balanced. But this notion that if you hand it to one guy 50% of the time and then you throw it to a combination of two guys, the other 50% that you're really balanced and you proudly pat yourself on the back uh, uh, and tell yourself that. And people have been doing that for decades. Well, then you're delusional. So, um, uh, yeah, that's how I look at it. Yeah, that right there is gold. Mike Leach to a T describing true offensive balance. Nothing balanced. There's nothing balanced about 50% run, 50% pass, because that's 50% stupid. <laughs> I love that. That is outstanding, Coach Leach. Preach on, my brother. Preach on. Uh, well, hopefully, offense will be on display on Friday night, what is a big night for the Washington football team. The Washington football team is hosting a Friday night football practice event at FedEx Field. Yes, the Palace. That is FedEx Field, the friendly confines of FedEx Field, the beloved site of so many great memories for our football team over the years. All right. Uh, No, actually, this is a cool deal. Uh, Practice under the lights Friday night at FedEx Field. Gates will open at 5.30 p.m. Tickets are free of charge for 20,000 fans who will have the opportunity to sit in the lower bowl by claiming their tickets. Ron Rivera on Thursday on Friday Night Football. It's interesting because I'm looking forward to tomorrow night uh, and, and, and with, with our fans in at FedEx Field should be an interesting thing in terms of really seeing it get ramped up. Um, and that, that'll be kind of neat because it'll be the first time for a lot of our guys in our, in our facility there at FedEx. Um, it's a new turf. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I mean, we've been very fortunate with, with these. You know, we had that hard rain um, just before we got back down here. And the fields were terrific, and they've been terrific. So I'm, I'm excited about that. The energy has been pretty good. Yesterday, I was not very happy with it. Uh, I let them know that afterwards. Uh, but I thought they came back today and handled today's practice the way you, you would expect them to do it. Uh, but like I said, I'm looking forward to the energy tomorrow. Yeah, and the Friday night practice should be fun. A lot of night practices for Washington 
here in training camp. The schedule in Richmond primarily was morning practice, evening walkthrough, and we have this night practice on Friday night at FedEx Field. And now to our special guest. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast one of Ron Rivera's favorite Washington football team reporters. Heck, maybe the favorite of Ron, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of the Athletic DC, the host of the Standig Room Only podcast. We are taping this as he is driving back from the team facility in Ashburn on Thursday afternoon. So Ben has Thursday's training camp practice and post-practice press conferences fresh in his mind. Ben, my friend, it's good to talk to you, man. How are you? I am doing okay. I don't know about the Ron Rivera favorite thing, but yes, I guess he's picked on me a couple of times in a, in a way that makes one think that, but who knows? Uh, but yes, all, all good. Done practice, uh, driving back from Virginia to the good state of Maryland and uh, happy to talk to you. Yes. Well, it is nice to have you on here. I appreciate you coming on. So I will spare you a question about the Washington football team quarterback competition and how real it is. I am though curious about this. What percentage of first-team practice reps is Taylor Heineke getting? I know that he's getting some. If you had to estimate the percentage, what would you say that percentage is? Um, I mean, I, I don't even know if it's registering it. I mean, I guess, like, when you look at there, I, it's always, I guess it's like Brian Fitzpatrick is, is getting the first reps in every session. And that's how I always kind of try to judge, judge these things. Then you look at, like, well, who's on the field when these people are performing? Is Terry McLaurin out there when Heineke's out there? Is Chase Young out there when he's out there on the other side? I, I would guess the answer to that is often no. So I, I you know, I, re- you know, I, I haven't really bought into that perspective. But like, there is some mixing and matching. You will see some players, you know, maybe a Jamin Davis or a Cam Curl still out there on the defense, and on the other side, you know, um, you know, it could be. Um, Sam Cosby could be out there or Adam Humphreys and Cam Sims. So, you know, there are people who would be kind of with the first team that may be out there with Heineke, but I don't view it like he's been getting the reps. I mean, in that sense, I mean, again, Fitzpatrick is the one out there at the start of every session. So that to me is sort of the signal of the QB one reps. How has Fitzpatrick looked to you? Um, you know, okay. I mean, you know, you, you see, you know, he makes some great throws. He makes some throws. You're like, oh, where's that going? Uh, but, you know, you can see a little bit of the Fitz magic here and there. He had a throw today where I sort of caught it from the from the corner of my eye, but it looked like he kind of threw it either blind or it was like he was like looking down the field and ended up like throwing it completely like 90 degrees to the right. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, and, and you can just the little qualities here and there about the, you know, the, the, leadership in the sense of like being one of the guys and, 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 and having fun out there. And I think people are feeding off of that, but you know, I, I think he's looked fine. You know, it's always have to give the benefit of the debt or you have to quantify all of this by, you know, they're, they're not allowed to tackle him. So times where he'll be in the pat in the, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be throwing the ball, but like he would have been sacked or, you know, there, there would have been a real pressure coming his way and he would have done something different. So it's so you always have to sort of, at least to tell myself, you know, remember what you're seeing here, and it's not everything is exactly healthy in game like conditions, of course. But you know, I, I think by, you know, I think overall he, he's done okay. So Kyle Allen, I know he has been out uh, due to having tweaked his surgically repaired left ankle this past Saturday, but it was last week, prior to Allen tweaking the ankle, that Ron Rivera finally gave a reason for not including Allen in the quarterback competition to whatever extent that competition exists. And that reason was Kyle coming off 
the injured ankle. Now, you asked Ron when he was on your podcast about two months ago about the exclusion of Allen from the competition, and Ron wouldn't say to you that the inclusion was because of the ankle. Ron essentially dodged the question. Why do you think that is? Why didn't Ron, with you, say what he said last week? It's a good question. I remember in the moment when that conversation was happening, and I was like, you know, I only I only have him for 10 minutes, and I don't necessarily want to burn a question specifically on Kyle Allen. <laughs> no offense to him, but like, you know, there's other things to discuss. So I didn't ask the subsequent, that, that follow-up question. I, I guess, you know, I remember when I talked to Jay Gruden um, earlier, you know, l- l- in the year, and he talked about, you know, what, what you know, what he had the, the, the Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, Dwayne Haskins situation, and he said basically, look, you can't have a three-player, a three-quarterback competition. There's just not enough time and reps to do it all. And part of me wonders if Rivera was just sort of looking at it like kind of in the same way. Like, I can't realistically have these three. So rather than say, hey, look, Kyle Allen's not involved because of, of, of this, thus opening the door to it, you know, from the start, he just said, look, it's these two guys, and this was where we're, where, where we're going. But, like, you know, now that when, when it was brought up at the start of training camp, after a couple of days, he softened it like, oh, yeah, I always kind of figured that Kyle would, would would be involved and so on. So, yeah, but maybe just a little bit of misdirection and, you know, help frame the situation during that whole lengthy break between uh, minicamp and training camp. So, you know, look, to me, I never really bought into the idea that Fitzpatrick and Heineke were battling for the one. The question was, would, would Allen be in the position to battle Heineke for the two? I think the answer was about to be yes until he hurt his ankle. Now maybe that's been pushed back or or, or, or not going to happen at all, depending on when Allen comes back. Rivera told us, uh, I think it was yesterday, that he expects Allen back soon, but he wasn't back today. So odd for sure. And, um, you know, but, you know, to that end, I mean, Taylor Heineke's had some decent moments here and there, but, you know, he certainly hasn't, in my opinion, stepped up to be coming close to challenging Fitzpatrick and would have been, you know, a bit more focused on keeping uh, Allen uh, off his back than anything. One of the things that really has stood out to me this week from Ron Rivera's post-practice press conferences is him singing the praises of Samuel Cosme. Is it safe to say that Cosme already has won the starting right tackle job? Um, I don't know. I mean, so again, this is interesting, right? Like early on in camp, especially when we were in Richmond, there was a lot of people you know, talking, tweeting about um, about Cosby struggling a bit, right? Um, and the way I kept viewing it is, well, one, he's a rookie. Two, he wasn't a top 10 pick. I mean, not that he was picked you know, way down in the draft, but like, you know, he wasn't, based on where he was picked, I don't think the expectation should have been he's automatically going to come in and, and kill it. Three, he's going up every snap against Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Like, that's not going to be... That's not how it's going to be most of the weeks. He's getting the worst of it in practice every day. So I kind of kept my expectations in check. And as you watch practice more and more, you've seen him stand up to those guys a, 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 a bit more. So, you know, I, I think there's reason for Rivera to give him so, some praise. And I, I suspect also some of it is some confidence. And maybe even the praise is just about Rivera having an understanding of, hey, He's not going to be ready day one, but as long as he keeps improving, we'll go from there. Now, Cornelius Lucas, the expected competition for right tackle had been out because he was placed on the COVID list. He's back now. He was working a little bit yesterday and all of today at left tackle because Charles Leno uh, was out due to a family matter. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, they, they, they want Cosme to start. Whether he starts in week one or not, 
we'll see. They want him to start. I mean, they don't do everything they did, draft him in the second round, move on from Morgan Moses if they didn't. So, you know, maybe Rivera's just saying all the right things to, you know, to, to, to get this kid as, as, much, as confident as possible. But, you know, we'll see. I, I would put him in the driver's seat because if nothing else, we just haven't seen Lucas do, you know, be with the ones um, on the right side. But at the same point, I, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion. There's still a ways to go. We're talking with Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC. When I was on your podcast a few weeks ago, we did a way-too-early projected season-opening roster for Washington, and I had Ron pulling a Mike Shanahan and keeping eight receivers. I know you disagree with that, but right now, what's your best guess as to how many receivers Ron keeps among the season-opening 53? Yeah, so, I mean, look, from a purely, you know, talent competition perspective, there is a lot of guys at that spot who have you know, given reason to, 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 um, to, to be interesting. I mean, to the point, like I did a breakdown the other day on the athletic, I, I went through all 12 wide receivers and total profile on, on each. The, the guy who's 12th, Tony Brown, he was on the practice squad a lot of last year, played, I think one game, you know, he, uh, in any other year in the last five years, he might be this year's Isaiah Wright or the Kelvin Harmon or the Cam Sims, the guy you're like, Oh, I didn't know that guy could make the team. And then he ends up doing it. This year, no offense to him, he has no chance. And it's not because he's performing badly. He's not. There are times I'm like, oh, Tony, today he went up and made a, a, a catch with like two or three guys around him in traffic and made a nice play. But like they're just, they have so many other options. It's hard to figure out how he's, how a guy like that could even sit the team, let alone Dax Milne, an actual draft pick. Again, Trey Quinn a couple of years ago was the last pick in the seventh round. Not just doesn't make the team, he ends up playing a lot. Dax Milne profiles in sort of the same way, but again, it's hard to see how he makes the team. I guess to answer your question, I stay with the with six. However, I basically at this point am taking the returner position and making it its own position. Meaning, if there's if they keep us somebody who's an actual returner, now maybe that player plays receiver, Stephen Sims, perhaps that would be or DeAndre Carter. That would be in theory seven, but like I'm sort of going to view that as like a separate issue almost because I just how I'm going to break it down in my head. So in terms of like receivers, I've got six, but the question is, are, is there going to be another uh, receiver who happens to be a, the punt returner? Because I, I don't, I just don't know if I see any of these guys who are in the punt returner mix beating out the guys who I would say would be the top six uh, in the receiver room. Well, seven is close to eight. I'm going to get you to eight <laughs> by the time we get to the cutdown day. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, a few other things you've asked Ron about this week that I want to get your takes on. So you on Wednesday asked Ron about Cameron Curl, who interestingly has been practicing a decent amount at free safety with Landon Collins as a strong safety. Do you think that that is Washington's safety alignment in base come week one? Collins at strong and Curl at free. I mean, I definitely think it's conceivable. I mean, he has been out there a lot. And Bobby McCain has been out there a lot as well. I have not necessarily tracked the amount of reps that each guy is getting when they're in a base look. But at the same time, uh, yeah, Cam Curl has been out there. And we went from all that talk of could, you know, who's going to play strong safety. You know, the option may be, well, playing both. And that's what's so interesting about Cam Curl is that he can play so many different positions. He was a cornerback. He had cornerback experience in college. He can do that. We this Buffalo nickel spot, you know, part of it means he's, you know, playing essentially a slot corner at times. Um, and, you know, he's playing close to the line of scrimmage, but he's also being able to play deep center field. So I, I do think that is a conceivable thing. I think ultimately those three safeties are going to be out on the field a lot. Uh, Bobby McCain is also a former corner. And, uh, you know, that gives you a lot of flexibility. This is something that Ron Rivera talks about over and over and over again. Uh, you know, having guys that can play 
kind of all over the place. Then you factor in that Kendall Fuller can move inside to the slot. Um, I kind of think on some level, you know, if, if if not now, maybe at some point their best combination might be William Jackson on one side, Fuller in the slot, um, Benjamin St. Just on the other outside, just because he's got a lot of length. And I think he's looked pretty good so far in camp with, you know, two of those safeties behind them. But that's what's interesting is with this group. For the first time in forever, we can talk about options that are viable versus guys like, well, I guess they have to play somebody. And uh, that that's a big step up from where they've been in the secondary for most of the last decade. Yeah, that's very true. Washington has a versatility in the secondary that's pretty impressive. A position flex in the secondary uh, that definitely stands out. So something else that you've asked Ron about is Washington's depth at edge rusher beyond the obvious two, Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Ron this week has had nice things to say about James Smith-Williams. Do you think Smith-Williams is firmly entrenched now as Washington's number three edge rusher? He, it, it certainly seems like he's making the roster, which I'm not saying was is, is a total shock, but you know, there's basically four guys battling for maybe just be two spots behind Chase Young and Montez Sweat. And, uh, you know, it's not like James Smith Williams was is like some incredibly experienced player that you must keep, but you know, he made the team last year, showed some versatility, be able to play inside and outside. And yeah, when asked about him, Rivera. Basically, flat out said he's going to be in the rotation. He, he didn't say he was the, the definitive Ryan Kerrigan replacement, but he referenced, he didn't actually mention Kerrigan by name, which is interesting. I thought he just said we had a guy here who had a lot of experience. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it could be. And, and of course, you know, the four players in the mix, two, two first year or two rookies, two second year players. Um, so well, whoever is staying at this point, unless they bring in somebody else, is going to be a player with minimal experience. Uh, but James Smith Williams, uh, you know, they, they clearly like him. I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't view him as like a pure edge guy per se, which is why I'm with just a, a, a tad surprised he might be the third guy in that spot. But nonetheless, they clearly like what they're getting out of him and uh, want to get him on the field. It's funny you bring that up about Ron with Kerrigan, because I brought the exact same thing up. Ron would not say Kerrigan's name. Ron has also done that, I don't know if you've noticed this, with Dwayne Haskins, where Ron won't say Dwayne's name. He'll talk about, you know, we should have had a competition last year, and we wanted to get a young guy ready, but like he won't say the guy's name who's no longer on the team. Uh, kind of a random question here. How were the crowds in Richmond? What was the fan attendance like there? You know, I don't know if we had formal numbers. A couple of us were guessing, you know maybe 2000, a little bit more than that, perhaps on, on some days, you know, for the morning session, the, the, the walkthroughs were fewer people there, but there wasn't really much happening. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think it was like that. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you had to have tickets. You couldn't just walk up the way you could in the past. So maybe that changed some dynamics as well, but I, I thought the crowds were, were, were decent enough and look also, you know, there were no autograph sessions afterwards. That's obviously a big reason for fans to go. Uh, but because of the, you know, covid uh situation you know that they're restricting that that type of um uh access to the players so uh yeah i thought the fans i thought it was you know i thought, I thought it was a good turnout um all things you know all things considered i mean i don't even know what to make of any crowd size at this point i mean it's been so long now uh you know for the most part at least being around this team seeing you know a lot of fans i don't even know what it looks like anymore all right, so you know the Wizards well. I want to get your take on everything going on here with our Wizards. Uh, we have the sign-and-trade for Spencer Dinwiddie. We have Russell Westbrook being traded to the Lakers. We have Bradley Beal apparently deciding not to be asked to be traded. We have the Wizards finally having some breathing room 
from a salary cap standpoint. All of these things are not yet official, but they're going to be becoming official. Uh, Bottom line this, are the Wizards better off now than they were at the end of last season, or not necessarily? Well, I think you can look at this in a couple of ways. I I give Tommy Shepard an awful lot of credit for what he's been able to accomplish. I mean, a year ago, or whenever the, before the John Wall trade happened, you had arguably the worst contract in the NBA in Wall, and I really thought there was no way you're ever getting out of this. The only way to do it would have been to literally trade him for Russell Westbrook, uh, because they both had the exact same contract and it was kind of the same issue. Like they're not the easiest guy to sort of uh, to work with, even if they're good players when healthy. They gave up the first round pick for Westbrook, and then Westbrook obviously comes in. He struggles early with injuries. Comes in, plays great down the stretch, but for a variety of reasons, I guess, including Westbrook wanting to to get out and go back to L.A., which is what a whole other story. Uh, he was able to turn that and 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 do it in a positive way. I think there's too many times in the past the Wizards were seemingly unwilling to they, they were just playing so short term thinking and and they couldn't seem to pivot or 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 or, or look you know l- look for the best way to maximize their situations that they were able to flip russell westbrook into everything that they got back i mean they don't they didn't get back like a top another like top star player but you know the three guys from the lakers kyle kuzma contavious caldwell pope Montrez Harrell plus a first round pick. So they break even on that first round pick that they gave to Houston. They turn that first round pick into Aaron Holiday and the 31st pick, which they used to then draft a guy out of wire. But then they still sort of add to that within that deal to get, because there's so much room left. What uh, Westbrook made so much money, there was a break, some room to add more money. And that's how they get Spencer Dinwiddie and, you know, whatever. They gave up some second round picks, but they did it with a purpose. Unlike in previous years, they just threw him away just because. Uh, to, to for short-term fixes. I think the, it, all of these moves in totality, they're a much deeper team now. I think they have a better, they have a more balanced team and they've got more financial flexibility. They, other than Beal, they don't really have a, a contract that's just so onerous that they can't like move it if they want to. They have a lot of contracts that are movable. However, you ask me, are they better? I don't know that they are. Uh, in fact, I was doing the math uh, with my colleague Fred Katz at the Athletic yesterday, and like you can probably fairly say, as it stands right now, there are probably seven teams in the East that are better than them, which means the Wizards are in that playing tournament scenario again. And I, I don't you know, is that where you want to be? I mean, this league, you want to be fighting for a title or in the basement getting a lot uh, top lottery picks, and the Wizards are in that middle ground, and even worse. They had the chance to trade Beal. They had a chance to bottom out in a positive way, and they didn't do it. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that's the case, but that's where they're at. So I like what they did based on what they were dealt with the hand they had. But at the same point, I, I kind of don't know where this is going. If, in fact, the Wizards are taking this new approach of instead of trying to win with multiple superstars, we're going to try to win with depth. Do you think that can work? Can you win with depth? in today's NBA. I know the Atlanta Hawks kind of sort of did it this past season. Do you see that as a legitimate approach here for the Wizards to take? Yeah, it's not a thing, right? I mean, maybe you can do that if your best player is Kevin Durant or something. And look, as good as Brad, this is like my point. Like, it's not like, I mean, like, I really like Bradley Beal. I think he's a guy that can be on a winning team. There's a lot about him that that's, you know, admirable and, 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 and great to have in your, in your, in your locker room and on your on the court. But at the same point, like, you know how good of a player is Bradley Beal? He, you know, he's I guess somewhere in the top twenty, but like he's not—he's closer to twenty than he is five. And you know, so having depth around him, 
is 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 good. And like Dinwiddie, if he's healthy coming out the ACL, he's a pretty good player. But you know, he's like sort of middle in the pack among point guards. You know, if, Rui, if you tell me Rui Hachimura has some big leap, okay, we can have a conversation. But you know, depth is good. But like they needed like this depth when they had Wall and Beal, not when they not when it's just Beal um, and and you know and, and other pieces. So, um, like I said, I think there's reason to be optimistic in terms of like Tommy Shepard did a really good job, I think, of, of taking the situation he had and maximizing it to the best he could. I I, I really am impressed. But at the same time, I don't view it like. The plan, in terms of like, well, is this now going to be a winning plan to contend in the East? I don't, I don't see that unless you know somebody on this roster makes a massive leap in in you know in their production and play, and you know you can't always predict that. And I don't think there's an obvious candidate to say that's going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Ben. Always enjoy talking with you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Al, always appreciate it, man. Talk soon. All right, let us talk Nationals before we call it a show. And uh, this ended up not being a very good work week for the Nationals, regardless of what ends up happening Friday night at the Atlanta Braves. The Nationals victimized by the Philadelphia Phillies to the tune of a four-game sweep at Nationals Park. The Nats blowing a 5-3 ninth-inning lead on Thursday, falling 7-6 to the Phillies at Nationals Park. The Nats, like I said, end up suffering a four-game sweep. 7-5 loss on Monday night, 5-4 loss on Tuesday night, 9-5 loss on Wednesday night, 7-6 loss on Thursday. The Nationals now find themselves a season-worst 11 games below 500 at 49-60. and 60. The Nats since improving to 40-38 and 38 with that two-game sweep of the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park not that long ago, June 29th and 30th, are just nine and 22. Basically, since the calendar turned to July, the Nationals season has gone down the tubes. I mean, that, that's the basic gist of what has happened here with the Nationals. And of course, we've had the major sell-off. And of course, as I now say, when it comes to the Nationals this season, it's not about the outcomes of games. It's more about the process of these games. It's not about what happens. It's about who does what. And that needs to be the focus because if all you're focusing on are the outcomes of these games, if all you're focusing on are the wins and losses, then you're probably going to be mostly disappointed over the remainder of this national season. So with what went down in this 7-6 loss to the Phillies on Thursday, this was a strange game. It was a wild game. It was along the lines of many of the Nats games against the Phillies this season. And I'd like to begin with Carter Keboom who was the Nationals' starting third baseman in all four games in this series. The Nats right now, to me, are doing exactly what they should be doing with Carter Keboom. They are putting him out there, game in, game out, and it's sink or swim. They're saying, hey, Carter, show us what you can do over the final two months of this season. This is precisely what I wanted the Nats to do with a guy like Carter Keboom. And to his credit, he is hitting. And he had another good offensive game on Thursday. Two for four with a double, an RBI single, and a walk. Carter Keboom had a one-out full count double to the left field corner in the bottom of the second. He had a one-out RBI single to left field in the Nats two-run fourth. He drew a two-out seven-pitch walk in the bottom of the seventh despite having been down to the count at 1.12. That was a good piece of hitting there. you down 1-2, you're able to work a seven-pitch walk. So three really good plate appearances for Carter Keboom on Thursday. Here's the deal with Keboom. He, over his last eight games now, is 11 for 27. 11 for 27. Two homers, a double, eight singles, and four walks. He's known for his bat. He's been delivering with his bat for a week plus now. So I want to give him credit for that because that is a big step forward from what he had been doing in previous stints 
at the major league level. But Keyboom's defense has been suspect, been suspect for a while now. And it's been certainly suspect in this latest go-round for him at the major league level. And the defense proved costly in this game on Thursday. Uh, Carter Keyboom with a very tough defensive play. He on a Ronald Torres grounder in what ended up being a four-run Phillies ninth inning. Did make a nice backhanded stab while going into foul territory, but then had trouble getting the ball out of his glove and made an errant throw for what went down as a throwing error. Uh, All four Phillies runs in the inning ended up being unearned because of the air. Now, that's a separate conversation. You know, baseball scoring, I don't understand why it has to be like this. I I know it can be really intricate, and this can be kind of tedious for people to get into, like, okay, what is an earned run? What isn't an earned run? But you tell me, like, if you watch that game on Thursday, does it really feel to you like all four of those runs off Kyle Finnegan in the top of the ninth inning were truly unearned? Like, none of those runs were earned by Finnegan. All of those runs are the fault of that quarter keep him error. I mean, I don't see things that way. If you break down what happened in that ninth inning, uh, Kyle Finnegan, top of the ninth, gives up four runs, all of which were unearned. He gives up a leadoff double to Odubel Herrera on a 1-2 pitch. That had nothing to do with the keep him error. Uh, we then, then did see, yes, Ronald Torres reach base on the throwing error by Keyboom, and then Finnegan got two outs. You can't just assume that those two outs would have been gotten had Keyboom made a better throw on the Torres grounder. You, you, you can't, like, adjust reality in that way. That's a different universe. If Keyboom makes a better throw on that play, who knows what happens in the ensuing two plate appearances. Anyway, Finnegan gets the two outs, and then comes, what, a two-out full count, game-tying two-run double by JT Real Muto to tie the game at five. Then Finnegan issues a two-out intentional walk of Bryce Harper. And then Finnegan gave up a two-out, two-run double to Reese Hoskins. So in an inning in which Kyle Finnegan gave up not one, not two, but three doubles, all four runs off him are unearned. Does, does that seem right? Does, I mean, does, does that seem just? So anyway, that's a scoring thing, though. I mean, whatever. Finnegan didn't get the job done. But yeah, Keyboom's error loomed large in that inning. And if what happened with Keyboom on Thursday sounds familiar, it should. He had a very similar play happen in the Cubs series, in which he makes a nice stab of the baseball while going into foul territory, but then makes a poor throw. I don't know what the deal is, but you tell me if you disagree. It seems like Keyboom has a hard time getting baseballs out of his glove. I, I don't know if that has to do with like the webbing of his glove. I don't know if that has to do with the size of his glove. I don't know if he needs to like oil up his glove more. I'm not sure what's going on there, but I've noticed this multiple times with him. He seems to have a problem getting baseballs out of his glove. You know, maybe all the sticky stuff that the pitchers were using somehow wound up in Keyboom's glove, and now the balls are sticking to his glove when he's trying to get him out of the glove to make a play. I'm not sure, but this is not the first time this has happened, what happened with him on Thursday. So very good offensive series for Keyboom, uh, very good offensive stretch for Keyboom, but the defense continues to be a problem. And it was a problem in this game on Thursday. So too was Finnegan. And, you know, Finnegan, like Keyboom, is a guy we monitor down the stretch of the season, right? Could Kyle Finnegan be the Nats' closer of the future? He had been looking good in that role. Uh, did not look so good, even though all of the runs were unearned in the game on Thursday. Uh, I thought an interesting game for Yadiel Hernandez, who right now is pretty much the Nats' everyday starting left fielder. He, he's been hitting pretty well. Uh, was the Nats' number five batter. That's been the case here recently. So he goes one for five with a single, but a couple of things really stand out with his game on Thursday. So the single, two out full count single, bottom of the seventh, good piece of hitting, was down to the count at 1.12. But what happens to Yadiel in that inning? He gets thrown out at home for the final out of the inning. Now, this was a wacko play, and let's give credit where credit's due. This ended up being a stellar defensive play by the Phillies. I mean, in some regards, it's almost like 
you know, the Nats were playing aggressive and they tried to do what they could to score. And the Phillies just made every aspect of this play work. So it's a Luis Garcia two out first pitch single on which the Philly second baseman, Ronald Torres, makes a great diving stop. Torres then tosses the ball to the shortstop, D.D. Gregorius, at second base for a force out that was not made. But then Gregorius, without stepping forward, so like with one foot next to the other, essentially, fires the baseball home, and he does this over Carter Keboom. Carter Keboom had gone into second base. Gregorius essentially throws the baseball over Keboom with both feet next to each other, so not stepping forward. And he makes a great throw to home plate where Yadiel gets tagged out by catcher JT Realmuto. So, I mean, if you want to rip Yadiel for getting thrown out, okay. But man, I mean, the Phillies made every aspect of that play work. That was a really good defensive play uh, by the Philadelphia Phillies. So that moment stood out for Yadiel. And then how about Yadiel getting clobbered by Reese Hoskins in the bottom of the second inning? Now, this was a scary moment. So Yadiel reached base with one out, bottom of the second, on a throwing error by the Philly starting pitcher, Aaron Nola. The throw caused Hoskins to leap into the air, and he ended up with his right arm essentially forearm smashing Yadiel to the ground. Like, if you watch the play in slow motion, (laughs) that's what it looks like. It looks like Hoskins is throwing a forearm smash right to the face of Yadiel. He goes crashing to the ground. He lay there for at least a little bit. It, It was scary. You were like, man, is he concussed? Thankfully, he looked to be okay. I mean, I don't think that was intentional at all on Hoskins' part. Although, like I said, if you slow it down, it does look like he's, you know, he's throwing jabs at Yadiel, but I don't think that's what Reese was doing. Uh, But that play stood out uh, from the game as well. So an eventful day on which uh, Yadiel goes one for five uh, for the Nationals. Also, interesting game for Juan Soto on Thursday. Two for three with two singles and two walks. So this ended up being an uneven series in a lot of ways for Juan Soto. He's getting on base, you know, like I think there's a different grading with Juan Soto because he's such a great player. So it's like when he's getting on base, that's good. But you want more. You want homers. You want him hitting for power. He's back to not hitting for power. We've been talking about that. He gets on base four times in this game on Thursday. Lead off five pitch walk and then adds two run fourth. A six pitch walk and then adds three run fifth. A leadoff single on a one two pitch in the bottom of the seventh. But what happened uh, in that inning? Soto ended up getting doubled up at first base for a double play off a Josh Bell liner. Now, again, this is kind of like one of these moments where a lot went well for the Phillies. I mean, Bell hit that ball hard. It ends up being caught, and Soto gets doubled off. But you can't get doubled off in a spot like that. You got to be better than that. So, you know, multiple bad moments for the Nats on the base paths to varying degrees in this game on Thursday. Uh, Soto did come through with a one-out full count double in the Nats' one-run ninth inning. And Soto also made a very good defensive play in this game. Good-looking, leaping, and backhanded catch above the short wall to rob D.D. Gregorius of a home run for the first out in the top of the seventh inning. That was a really nice play. That's not an easy play to make, and Soto made it. You know, we're not used to him robbing home runs. You know, he's uh, he's not someone who's necessarily known for doing that. He's not Torrey Hunter or something like that, uh, but he has done a good defensive job in right field this season. We've talked about that. Soto's year, like, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to only look at the hitting, and that's understandable, but uh, look at the defense, too. He had a step-back defensive season last year and left. He, this season, of course, has shifted over to the more important defensive position of right field, and he's done a good job. You know, he stepped over and he stepped up. Like, he's done a good job in right field, and uh, I thought that moment was kind of reflective of that. So I don't want to just pay lip service to defense. Like, I want to salute the guy when he does well in that regard, and he did do well uh, in that regard. But a lot of things going on with Juan Soto in this game on Thursday as well. We had another home run for Josh Bell. Uh, that's something to be thinking about. Josh Bell, to me, is a piece moving forward 
for the Nationals. And he remains, I think, for the most part, locked in. You know, it's so interesting with Bell. His numbers for the year still aren't that impressive. Like, he had one terrible month to begin the season, and it was a terrible month. Since the start of May, though, he's done a good job. So here we are now, well into August. You're looking at May, June, July, a week or so into August. And still, his overall numbers for the season, they're not that good. Like, they're not woeful or anything like that. But you'd think they'd be better than what they are. Like, I think about Kyle Schwarber. Schwarber got off to a bad start to this season. He went nuclear in June, and his numbers for the season were great uh, at that point. Now, I know it was a tremendous month that Schwarber authored in June. But Bell now, we're working on multiple months here. This guy hitting well. And still for the season, like, you look at it, he's only batting 251 on the year. He only has an on-base percentage of 310. But he does have a slugging percentage now of 480. He is now second on the Nats with 19 home runs, and he had another big homer in this game on Thursday. Tie-breaking three-run shot to right center field on a 1-2 pitch from Philly starter Aaron Nola in the bottom of the fifth to put the Nats up 5-2. That was some home run. That was uh, a big home run in the game. I mean, certainly in the moment, you felt like that could prove to be the game-winning hit. The homer going a projected 413 feet per stat cast. But it's not just the homer. And, you know, Bell hits for power. He's doing a good job this season hitting for power from both sides of the plate. I mentioned he's second on the Nats with 19 homers. Seven home runs have come with him batting right-handed. 12 home runs have come with him batting left-handed. So he's not one of these switch hitters who is, you know, doomed when he bats from one side of the plate. He's capable from both sides of the plate. Uh, But Bell had a couple of singles in this game too. A seeing eye single through the right side of the infield in the Nats two-run fourth inning. You know, a little bit of uh, puck luck on that hit, but that's okay. You know, you're allowed to do that. And Bell, you're speaking of puck luck, a one-out run scoring single in the bottom of the ninth inning. You know, this was a a wild and wacky Nats-Phillies game on Thursday. We've had a lot of these games this season between the Nationals and the Phillies. Weird things happen when the Nats play the Phils, especially this year. And this game was no exception. Multiple moments like that. And this is one of them. So the one-out run scoring single in the bottom of the ninth for Bell, it comes with him despite having been down to the count at 1.02. This is a play on which the ball hit second base. The Philly shortstop, D.D. Gregorius, then had a throwing error, and Soto was awarded home. Like, D.D. ended up essentially spiking the ball uh, into the infield to try to bounce it to first base. I guess that's what he was thinking. Uh, Probably should have just held on to the baseball. Soto was awarded home, and the Nats cut it to 7-6. Like, so this was close, you know? This wasn't uh, some situation where the Nats gave up a bunch of runs in the top of the ninth and tapped out in the bottom of the ninth. Like, the Nats, the boys battled it as Davey Martinez likes to say. So uh, that was another interesting moment uh, in the game on Thursday. Bell two now, for those of you who care about runs batted in, number one on the Nationals in RBI on the season uh, with 60. Uh, Another thing that stood out from a position playing standpoint for the Nats on Thursday, Alcides Escobar had another bad throw. And, you know, you think about Alcides. So he missed four consecutive games due to a hit by pitch. And the issue had to do with a wrist So he comes back from that four-game absence. We first see him in the game on Wednesday night, okay? He's the Nats' starting shortstop, number two batter, and he in the game has two errors, uh, including a two-out throwing error in the Phillies' one-run eighth inning. And that was about as routine of a grounder as you'll ever see. Like, the baseball was pretty much hit right to Alcides. You could argue maybe he felt rushed a bit, but still, like, that wasn't some super difficult play, and he was off on the throw. Sure enough, what happens in this game on Thursday? Alcides Escobar... Uh, he nearly commits a throwing error with two outs in the top of the fifth inning. So he was actually initially charged with an error. Travis Jankowski was batting. It's a Jankowski grounder. Jankowski can run. And uh, Escobar makes a bad throw. 
The Nats, though, challenge the play, and the play gets overturned into an out as it was ruled that Josh Bell tagged Jankowski. So technically not an error for Escobar in the game, but he was off on another throw. And you do wonder, is the wrist the issue here? Like, it's hard to ignore that coincidence. He has had the wrist, I believe, taped up. He certainly missed multiple games because of the wrist. And now he's had, you could argue, three error-worthy plays over these first two games back here. So something to be thinking. And I'm not, I don't know that he should be out there necessarily right now uh, playing defensively if he's, he's going to have uh, these kinds of issues throwing the ball. Uh, Escobar did have a hit on Thursday, a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch in that Nationals three-run fifth inning. So the Nats starting pitcher in this 7-6 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on Thursday was Joe Ross. You never know what you're going to get from Joe Ross in any given outing. And this was one of those rare Joe Ross starts this season in which he was neither great nor awful. He was kind of right down the middle. Uh, And I thought actually he was more good than bad. Like if you have to drop this into one bucket, I thought Ross was actually pretty good in this game. The final line is three runs and six into third innings. Uh, You know, that's not spectacular, but it's obviously not terrible. Uh, He gave up just five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. He had seven strikeouts. He threw 59 strikes versus 25 balls on 84 pitches. I thought he looked pretty good for the majority of this outing. Now, he gave up a run in the top of the second, although to a degree, I thought Ross was failed by his defense in the top of the second inning. Uh, As you can probably tell, this was not a cleanly played game in the field by both teams, but Ross gives up the run in the top of the second, leadoff single by Reese Hoskins on a ball that got by Josh Bell. I mean, it was not an easy play for Bell to make, and Josh has done a good job defensively at first base this season, so I'm not going to crush him for this, but uh, Bell was kind of like falling down on the play, and I don't know how realistic it was for him to make that play, but it was, I thought, makeable to at least an extent. So you have that leadoff single by Hoskins, then a two-out seven-pitch walk of Odubel Herrera by Ross, and then a two-out first-pitch RBI single by Ronald Torres on a ball that got past a diving Alcides Escobar. Again, not an easy play to make. You do wonder, though, if another shortstop maybe makes that play. The shame of this inning, this one-run Philly second, was that Ross, off the leadoff single by Hoskins, then recorded back-to-back three-pitch strikeouts of D.D. Gregorius and Alec Bohm. So, you know, Ross, who's been a much better strikeout pitcher this season, did a nice job in that second inning and then ultimately got God in giving up the run. Uh, Ross gave up another run top of the third, a two-out solo homer by Bryce Harper to dead center. Look, you got to give the devil his due. Harper had an excellent series against the Nationals, all right? There are no two ways about it. He just, he had a very good series. He killed the Nats in this series. And that was some homer. Again, to dead center, the ball went a projected 427 feet for StatCast. And this was a milestone homer for Bryce. Uh, this was home run number 250, number 250 in Bryce Harper's regular season career. So uh, that was a shot by Bryce. And then Ross gave up his third run, top of the seventh inning, went out first pitch, double by Alec Bohm, went out RBI single by Odubel Herrera. But I didn't think Ross was bad at all. You know, it just was kind of one of those games, a few uh, moments got away from him. But beyond that, he certainly put the Nats in a position to win this game. This was his 19th start of the season. He has an ERA of 4-0-2. And that's kind of what Joe Ross has been this season. Uh, now, he's done it in a Jekyll and Hyde manner, right? For the most part, he's either been great or been bad. This game was kind of down the middle. Haven't been many of those outings for Ross this year. But Ross, to me, is a guy who you look at for next season and beyond of, all right, he's not an ace of a staff. He's not a number two or even really, I think, a number three starter. But can he be a serviceable number four starter for you? I think the answer is yes, he can be. But we need to see more of that from him. You know, we need to see more of the good than the bad. You're going to see some bad with Ross. You know, he's not a dominant starting pitcher. But can he be someone who, I want to, I want to see him finish this season with an ERA 
in the low fours, I would really prefer the high threes. You know, you do that, you say, all right, that's more or less the Ross we saw in 2015, 2016. That's a serviceable rotational piece for the Nats moving forward. So let's continue to see that. And I thought the Ross, for the most part, who we saw on Thursday was along those lines. This was start number three for Joe since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on with the right elbow inflammation. And sure enough, the first two outings, right? One was really good. One was really bad. 6-5 loss at the Phillies on July 26th. Joe Ross in that game, five scoreless innings. Very good. The next outing, 6-3 loss to the Cubs at Nash Park on July 31st. Five runs, four earned, and four in the third innings. Really bad. This latest outing uh, was kind of down the middle, leaning toward good from Ross on Thursday. And then with the Nats bullpen, we went through what Kyle Finnegan did the other two relievers utilized by the Nats on Thursday, I thought it looked good. Uh, Ryan Harper had another scoreless outing. Now, it wasn't perfection. He faced five batters. He got three outs. He did issue back-to-back two-out walks in the top of the seventh inning. But Ryan Harper now on the season has an ERA of 0.90. He has a whip of 0.75. I mean, Ryan Harper's done a good job this year. And like I said, it wasn't perfect on Thursday. But again, ultimately, he gets three outs, is officially credited right with a scoreless inning. And Mason Thompson, the guy who the Nats got from the Padres in the Daniel Hudson trade, uh, he ended up looking good in this game on Thursday. Top of the eighth inning, does give up a one-out single to the first batter he faces, Reese Hoskins, but then gets the final two outs, including a good-looking strikeout of Alec Bohm on three pitches. So next up for the Nats is a six-game road trip, three games at the Atlanta Braves, then an off day on Monday, and then three games at the New York Mets. Game one at the Braves Friday night at 7.20. And we did get word from Davey Martinez on Thursday that the five members of his coaching staff who had tested positive for COVID-19 have been cleared and they will travel Sunday to New York City and then rejoin the Nats for the series at the Mets. So good news there. Yeah, this has been some lengthy absence for these coaches. I mean, Davey's been working with a makeshift coaching staff for a good while here and uh, good to get these guys back and uh, hopefully everyone is doing well. So good news there. All right, and that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The weekend, always a good opportunity to catch up on anything that you may have missed on the podcast. We have on this podcast been providing in-depth coverage of every day of Washington football team training camp. All of the key things said by Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conferences, discussions about all of the relevant topics, all right here on this podcast, properly time-stamped, so you don't have to go crazy searching for when my Washington football team segments start. Now, the timestamps can be a little off because the national ads that run in each episode alternate. They're not all the same length. So if a timestamp proves to be like five to 10 seconds off, uh, my apologies, but uh, there's nothing that I can do about that. Not to bore you with all of this, but I published the timestamps for each episode upon publication of the episode uh, each weekday at like 2 a.m. But the national ads that you hear in each episode depend on when you listen to the episode. So the ads will change even if you've downloaded an episode. So the actual start times of segments fluctuate a bit. Trust me, I've explored this issue a bunch. The ads that are sold through the company with uh, which I signed Blue Wire rotate. That's fine. That's how you make money in podcasting. But bottom line, if you missed anything over the course of the week, you can catch up on the weekend. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. Nothing ba- There's nothing balanced about 50% run, 50% pass, because that's 50% stupid.